0: It is the most important skill by a large factor.
1: Your first impression matters so much, it can determine the value of your case even before you step foot in the courtroom.
0: If we pre-lit ask to disclose insurance limits and they don't, we file. If we believe that this is not going to be reasonable, file. If they have a video of a dash cam and they won't provide it, file. I am teaching the other side what kind of leopard I am.
1: Welcome to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io, the preeminent personal injury marketing agency. Each week you get insights and wisdom from some of the best in the industry. Before we get started, hit that follow button so that you never miss an episode. Ready to dominate your market? Let's go. How do you get more value out of existing cases? File them. I know you're thinking, wait, if I'm a pre-lit firm, why would I file a case? Hear me out, insurance companies don't have your best interests at heart and adjusters aren't going to give you max value from the jump. Shocker, I know. If the insurance adjuster is being unreasonable or unfair, there's a good chance they will try to settle for pennies on the dollar. To get max value, according to Mike, you gotta nip that behavior in the butt. The owner of Alder Law has recovered over $1.7 billion for his clients, and he's one of the best litigators in the state of California. Over two decades of successful litigation has taught him invaluable lessons which he shares today. Mike digs into the appropriate time to file cases, even if you're a pre firm, why depositions are more important than closing arguments, and how to get financial help you need to try cases successfully. Here's Mike Alder, owner at Alder Law, on how he first got into law.
0: You know, when I was in college, I didn't know any lawyers. My parents were teachers. I had a path to become a teacher. And I met someone, and they said on on the front lawn of, fraternity as I'm drinking. They go, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd, l- I'd like to have another beer. What do you want to do? <laughs> she said, oh, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to become uh, an entertainment lawyer, and I'm going to move to L.A. That was the start of my legal career. Sorry, it's not more exciting <laughs> than that, but, but <laughs> you know.
1: Everyone has a story. A lot of times it's it's the father, you know, hey, they're following their footsteps. And I like asking that questions because it's so different everyone that answers it i kind of want to jump right ahead you know what what pulled you to create your own firm and kind of step out on your own
0: well um is this a a real show or the instagram fake show if it's a real show i got fired you know i had been working for my mentor for a long time who I think a lot of people acknowledge, certainly I do, is the greatest trial lawyer I've ever seen, a guy named Michael Pughes. And, you know, he's trained in L.A., Gary Dordick, you know, John Taylor, Jeff Wells, Pat McNicholas. We all kind of went through Doug Schaefer. We went through the Pew School. But it's not a a lifetime path, and he made that clear. And it kind of ran its course. And so fortuitously, he fired me. Or I got back from a long trip and none of my stuff was in the office anymore, so I assumed that. So I wrote him a a wonderful note and I said, look, I'm sorry it ended this way, but I got to tell you, you are the most amazing lawyer. You've taught me the most that I could ever imagine. You have set me up for my legal career and I so appreciate it. And then started my own firm out of my my house with one case. I remember I, I was in a building on Ventura Boulevard in the valley in a mailbox, et cetera. But this one, they called their mailboxes suites. So I was in suite 101. Two years later, that building got torn down. So, you know, <laughs> but by that time I had an office.
1: <laughs> You've got some legendary trial results. You're personally involved in every case your firm takes on. How do you manage to, to make time for that? What goes into the, the extent that you're involved in these cases?
0: You know, as your practice matures and you get more cases, it's harder to, quote, be personally involved in every case. And in fact, we reached a point just recently, I'd say maybe six to eight months ago, where I thought that we had too many cases because while the quantity was there, the quality suffered because I felt like we weren't paying enough attention and I was not involved in as many of the cases as I could be. So we've used technology. We've learned from the Mike Morse's of the world, the RezaTorx today, some of the people you know probably have interviewed, the Chad Dudley's, Dudley de Primarily now we use Slack as creating a channel for every case. We have our case management software that we've hired. You may know Vista Consulting, Baton Rouge, Tim K, Heather Carroll, and they've helped us. Identify the projections and the values and the grading of the cases. And so I can print that as it's updated. And then I'll use that and kind of go with Slack that has everybody on the particular team that's on that case. Hey, what's going on? What's happening next? How can I be involved? What's the damages? What's the liability? Let's talk about that. Hey, do this, that kind of stuff. And that allows me to at least stay on a higher level experience strategy, plus motivation of keeping the case going. But then on the really significant larger cases, obviously, you know, I'm more involved in, I mean, I'm at the ground floor. I love taking depots. So if I've got a couple of free day or a couple of free day next week, I'll just send a firm wide email and said anybody got any depots they got coming up i'd love to do
1: em. i had chad on chad dudley we were talking about those top five percent and the and how to identify those because a lot of times that could be half the firm's revenue you, whether it's a pre-lit firm or a trial firm and i want to kind of get into pre-lit it, it lends itself more to like productization running them through the assembly line you're not getting maximum value you know it's it's focused on cash flow and these these averages like here's the average of this Case typically results versus the trial, you're getting maximum value. So you said quantities before. And I kind of want to lean into that because, you know, when I, if I've talked to a Mike Morrison, he's saying, well, my, my pod can handle 70 cases. I don't know the, I can't remember the exact number. You know, a pre lit firm may need 250 cases to do good, where, you know, the case selection criteria of a trial, uh, someone that's actually going to trial may need, Significantly less because you're getting a lot more value.
0: We only have pre lit cases if the adjuster, defense lawyer, third party administrator is treating us fairly, or we think we're going to be treated fairly. If we get any hesitation, any inkling that they're not going to treat us fairly, we file. So we get a significant amount of cases that are already in litigation that, you know, right before experts that they need trial. Expertise. They need litigation help, or they need you know financial help. But it's also a big percentage early on, and I I'm a big believer in leopards don't change their spots. Every one of us is looking at everybody else and sizing them up pretty quickly, and we all believe that leopards don't change their spots. So I say I say this to I'm going to a law school this afternoon. I'm going to say hey, if you go on a blind date let's say lady uh, a woman is waiting for a blind date and the guy shows up late he shows up disheveled right he's a he may have a very legitimate reason for that but statistically you realize that more likely than not at least certainly probably more than that eh, they're probably they don't give a crap about this they're not reliable because we know that leopards don't change their spots in other words you show up late for a meeting That usually means you lack motivation, you're not organized, you're not this, you're not consistent, you sleep late, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that?
1: 100%.
0: The best people about determining what kind of leopard you are are insurance companies because they deal with thousands, tens of thousands of lawyers and cases, and they know that if a lawyer does or a law firm does X, Y, or Z, that statistically- they'll do X, Y, and Z later. Right? And it doesn't matter if you have a good reason for doing X, Y, or Z. Statistically, they know it doesn't matter. So for example, if you say, well, I'm not going to file because my client's still treating and I'm going to wait till the statute and file right before the statute. they You've already told the insurance company what kind of leopard you are and they know that that kind of lawyer is not going to go to trial, not going to spend money on cases. If we wait them out, they're going to fold or they'll take a lowball offer, right? Conversely, and this is our philosophy, if we pre-lit ask to disclose insurance limits and they don't, we file. If we believe that they're not, this adjuster is not going to be reasonable, a rear-end accident, well, we believe the plaintiff uh, stopped early and it was 10% at fault, file. If they have a video of a dash cam and they won't provide it, file. It's so important because those types of things, in addition to file, serve, and in California, you know, or whatever jurisdiction, the very earliest that you can notice depots, you notice them. Of course, it's going to be unilaterally set. And when they squawk and say, we're not available, then you say, well, look, I'm happy to move it. As soon as you give me a date that's relatively close in time, I'll move it to that date. Oh, by the way, my client's available for depot right now. You want to do a medical exam? You don't need to give me statutory notice. They can show up tomorrow. Find the doctor you want. Oh, Mike, aren't you giving away the farm? No, I am teaching the other side what kind of leopard I am. And so because of that, we don't have a lot of pre-lit cases if your case is significant, it ain't going to settle for real value pre-lit, period. If you got a slip and fall case, it ain't going to settle pre-lit for full value. If you've got a $500 million policy, it ain't going to settle pre-lit for full value. They could give a crap. So we know that when there's certain types of cases or certain behaviors, we move right into litigation. And as an aside, I've met with, I don't even know how many young lawyers starting their practice I, and I always say, let me come to your office. Mike, you want to come to my office? We're in LA. How are you going to drive? All I'm like, look, let me come to your office. I want to see your setup. And I could not tell you, Chris, how many young lawyers that I go to. And I'm like, how many cases do you have? Here? 30. I'm like, how many are pre-lit? Uh, 28. I said, I'm going to come back in two weeks. I want you to come back and tell me on each one, do you think the adjuster is treating you fairly or will treat you fairly? These are pre-lit adjusters, right? And then I'm going to have you file a lawsuit in every one that you don't believe is treating you fairly or will. Oh, Mike, but that's $800. a case. I said, I will loan you the money interest-free because I know if you do what I say, that you are gonna settle 70% of the cases that if they give you bullshit, you file, you go to a new litigation adjuster or a defense lawyer, especially the cases where you just need another 10 grand or 15 grand, that puts you over the, the edge. And I'm not worried about you stiffening me because you're gonna have more money than you ever had before to give it back to me. 100% of the lawyers that follow that advice I pay me back and go. I've settled more cases in the, in the last three, four months than I have in the last year and a half. What are you doing? Yeah, you're getting to an adjuster or a lawyer that has more authority or whatever. But really, you're flag. They're flagging you up. Get this guy out uh, of this. This woman out of my face. Get. You know, it's another ten grand. They're going to make us spend another hundred grand litigating this case. We're not going to be able to wake them out. We're not going to be able to outspend them. We don't want that case on our radar. We want the billboard lawyers that are no lawyer is touching them that are, we know are going to take 50 cents on the dollar. I want those people in my network. I don't want an alder in my network or anybody else who's willing to push. And then as the last thing I would say, the, the by far the most Frequent things I get is my client's still treating. I want to wait till my client stops treating, and I'm not set up for litigation. And I've always found that to be yeah, if you've got a $15,000 policy and you need to wait for the MRI, the ortho, this to tell you whatever to pop the policy, great. But if you've got a bigger policy, why the hell would you wait till your client stops treating and you tell the insurance company, okay, no more issues? Hey, pay me money. And also you're letting time go by. Your client can still treat while you're in litigation, but I'm gonna be in litigation, I'm not set up. What, 70% of the cases that you've been working on pre-lit are gonna settle in the first month or two. You're not gonna be inundated with case, with work. You're gonna be inundated with money.
1: I've got so many follow-up questions here. Okay, so Mike, this is fantastic because I'd always made this distinction of Hey, your cash flow suffers when you're when you're a trial, when you're a litigating firm, but you're saying no, you're gonna settle these faster. See, so the cash flow is there. So let me ask, let me put you in a scenario here. Okay. Firms that are hundred, 150 employees, full of paraprofessionals, and they're not taking any cases of trial. And they're in this scenario. They've got the big, you know, the office, and they got the desks, how do they transition assembly line to the litigating firm?
0: Well, first of all, what's their mindset? What's their goal? Are they interested in them making as much money as possible? Or are they interested in helping their clients get as much money as possible? There are many firms that the primary interest is how do the owners or the people at the top make the most money? and they treat clients differently. They treat them as widgets, right? They don't need to talk to the client because they're a widget, and it's just a bag of money that I need to extract out of that case. If you instead have a mindset of, I will make plenty of money as if I maximize the value for my client. Now, just that mindset change increases the quality of your legal representation. And you and I know that a case manager is not doing legal work. They're certainly can be very well educated on certain issues of the law, but that pre lit legal is just checking boxes and getting whatever. That's not legal work. And the carriers don't look at it as legal work. So, what are you doing for legal work? Well, you need a lawyer to, to evaluate is it time to file? Are we being treated fairly? You can't expect those paraprofessionals. Those hundreds of employees to be able to make, certainly they could if you train them and ask them, but to make those decisions of am I being treated fairly, look, I have a lot of friends and I've hired people from the insurance business. My managing attorney, Craig Harseker, was a former managing attorney for Farmers in-house Council in California. There's no doubt that periodically carriers put out a dictate. I remember AAA said we are going to now say the plaintiff is 20% comparatively responsible in all cases. Every case, every pre-lit case, they said, well, we believe the plaintiff's 20% at fault because they stopped early, they were speeding, they were driving, you know, whatever. And I said, the only way to stop that is as soon as they say 20% and there's no comparative, you file. They go, oh, well, we got it. Okay. It works on all of these other people that Aren't looking at the case with a lawyer, but for lawyers that look at the file, let's just pay them. I am not in any way saying that pre-lit law firms aren't real lawyers and trial lawyers are real lawyers, right? I know several pre-lit predominant firms that care about their clients and really do it well, client centric. If you know, I don't know if you know Mark Sweet in Orange County, Sweet Law. Not Sweet James, but Sweet Law is a big pre-lit law firm. And every time we talk, he talks about his clients. I know that he does everything in his power to maximize value for clients. I And I totally respect him for that. But we all know the bill firms that don't. I get it.
1: When you have heavy hitting trial attorneys that you've nurtured, you've developed that are very skilled, how do you keep them under your firm? And like, do you have to profit share? Like what goes into that?
0: Well, it's hard, right? I have over the 23 years that I've had a firm at some point you nurture young talent, just like I was nurtured, just like every trial lawyer that's out there. You know, they had a mentor. And you know, the, the student passes the master or whatever it is. Once they start to get a little bit big for the britches, God forbid they get a, a good verdict, right? You know, they want more money. They want to own a piece of the pie. They want to take care of themselves and their family, and that is something to be encouraged. I have, in the past, followed what my mentor said is when I started working for my Hughes, The first thing he said was, "You're never going to be a partner here. I want you to learn here." But this is my shop, and it's going to always be my shop. And so I've had some really excellent lawyers come through my firm, get to that point of it needs to stop being Alder Law and become Alder and whatever. And I'm like, how do I help you start your firm? But now, you know, I've got some really excellent lawyers in our firm. With the help of Tim McKay at Vista and some thought leaders, I'm now starting to Think about how do I include them in the profit sharing, how, not just bonuses, but profit. How do they own and take ownership of cases, ultimately taking ownership of part of the firm? Because I want to keep these lawyers. I mean, I want them to be my, the lawyers I work with for a long period of time. And I put a lot of effort into, into helping them become the lawyers that they are. That institutional knowledge, I wanna keep in the firm because I know when they do things the way that our firm does it, our clients benefit.
1: When Mike first opened his firm, the only thing he knew was trying cases. For the first five years of practice, all of his cases were less than three months from trial. And trial comes with substantial upfront costs. Over the years, good lawyers were running out of funds for trials and coming to Mike for help. Having been there himself, Mike started the Warrior Fund.
0: They were afraid of the risk of trial because if they put too much of their total money into a case and it didn't come out well, they go, they go belly up. And so I never wanted money to be a reason why a young lawyer didn't take a case to trial because I realized one, it helps them, two, it helps their clients, and three, it helps my clients because the more cases we try, The better everybody is, and so I just kind of said, "Look, if you're a lawyer four or five years or less, I'll just I'll pay half of your costs up to ten grand, and if you win or you settle, give it back to me. If you don't, I'll eat it, and I'll help you prepare for the trial, strategize, whatever. And that was just kind of like I experienced that myself. I now had had one just one trial lawyer of the year." Now all these opportunities, trying. Now eight-figure case. I mean, and so that was what—twelve years, thirteen years ago—I started that. Interestingly, I've not helped a ton of people. Uh, I'd say maybe thirty or forty people have taken me up on it over a decade or more. Why? Well, what's the catch? What's the catch? Every speech I would do at trial lawyer, I would talk about the Warrior Fund. I would send stuff out about it. So many people are looking at. What are you trying to get over on? And I get it, but that's the impetus. It's still here. I still do it. I still help people. There are no strings attached, right? I am a firm believer in good karma, good works, good deeds is a good life and it is good business period paragraph.
1: I want to switch over to this because you kind of lit up when you said this earlier. And you've got a database of over 9,000 depositions. What, what is it about depositions? What, you know, tell me about that. Why do you just thrive and love depos so much?
0: Because it is the most important skill by a large factor in being a good litigator, a great litigator, overwhelmingly more important to your cases than being a good trial lawyer, than being a good paper lawyer whatever. And the reason I say that is, and I teach a class now, I'm an adjunct at Loyola Law School on this topic. When the dean said, when I was complaining about, law schools don't teach you shit about pricing law. He's like, I know. How do we do that? I'm like, well, let's teach a class on depositions. And it kind of started that way. And I'm, this fall, I'm actually, it's expanded to a full, full professor class. Wow. Primarily around litigation strategies but depots are a huge part of it. Let me tell you why. People want to always come to my closings or read my closings. I'm like, nah, don't read that. Come to a depot. You'll get way more out of that than coming to my tr- closing arguments. I've done 100 plus jury trials. I don't even know. I lost track. But I've done 10,000 cases. All the non-trial cases settled. So 99% of my cases settle. In all of those cases that are litigated, there's a first depot. That first depot, especially pre-COVID and now back to what I'm doing, in person is really the first opportunity that you meet the opposing counsel, that you size them up, that they size you up, right? That you get to show who you are. And after that first depot, which is usually a plaintiff or a defendant or a PMK, they write a letter to the carrier. And they either ask for reserves or they change the reserves or amend the reserve. And if you make a good impression, not because of what you accomplished in the depot from an information standpoint, how they feel about you, they will write in the letter that the plaintiff's case is better. Maybe they don't say, Alderson looks like a great lawyer and I'm scared shitless, paid more money. No, they won't say that. They'll say... Boy, this is a good case for the plaintiff. The plaintiff makes a great presentation. Our client's not going to look good at trial, whatever. And that impression, and that that kind of mindset, is setting you up for the case. And so, when I give te- techniques about depo strategy, and I say, clean the, the the detritus in the trash out of your office, get good coffee, get half and half instead of the powdered stuff. Chris, I swear to God, I settled the case for half a million dollars more because I had half and half because at the first depot, the defense lawyer is like looking for the cream creamer for the for their delicious Starbucks coffee in my clean office that has a video always at every depot that has a whiteboard in the room that there's another depot going on in the office next in the conference room next door. And there's a lot of activity and I'm in a suit and a tie and I'm looking good and maybe I have a demonstrative blow up, that's probably meaningless to the case, but it looks like I'm prepared. And they go, hey, Mike, where's the creamer for the coffee? And they're looking for the powder stuff. And I say, it's right there in the carafe. I swear to you, way more often than you might think, they're like, wait, is this half and half? And I'm like, yeah, baby, we're big time. People don't understand that That mindset, and you get that in a depot. You don't get it in special interrogatories. Special interrogatories, we don't send out anymore. They are nine months of back and forth, every objection under the sun. You get a watered-down answer that you could have gotten in the depot directly, and you don't spend all of that time. So that's why I'm so excited about depots, because depots, depots, depots are the way you move your cases forward. You got a stalled negotiation? Notice a damn depot. It makes the defense lawyer go get the file out of the corner of their office. I guess you'd say now that's uh, whatever that in theory, or it picks it, calls up on the computer. How many times have they this case just been languishing and you do something like notice a depot, notice a witness depot, figure out something. They pull out the case, email, call, text Mike. Hey, I know she noticed this depot. Hey, why why isn't this case settled? What can we do to get this case settled? It's activity, it's movement. And so I'm like, we set, we can notice depots 20 days after service. 20 days after service. As soon as the depot, you know, with the relevant time period, we're setting up the defendant, and if there's a PMK depot 40 days after we serve the complaint. It sets the tone.
1: I love every bit of that. And I'd imagine too, so do you have the occasional where maybe you have the defense on the other side and you're like, hey, hey, uh, hey, Bob. And you've uh, taken him to court and taken them to trial and you, you have that scenario too where they see you. Oh. I think the perception's everything.
0: If you're nice to the court reporter or the court reporting service and they know you, Mr. Alder, Mike, good, hey, good. Or the videographer, right? You, you walk in and the videographer in the car reporter. oh, Mr. Alder, I didn't know you were taking that step up. It says something, not because I'm some badass, but maybe because I, I brought them muffins or I went down to get a cup of coffee or a power bar and I asked, hey, do you want something? Hey, I'm ordering Starbucks. Anybody want a Starbucks? They don't take you up on it. But all of that goes to that mindset. And I'm a big quick thinker guy, right? I'm a big dad joke puns, right? And so I'll test the other side. I'll start messing with them, right? I'll start an expert depot with Doc. How you doing today? And they'll go. I'm doing fine. I'm like, well, let me see what I can do about that, right? And they're like, what? Wait, what? What? <laughs> not, not because I'm trying to harass them, mm-hmm. but those things are out of the ordinary. They're going, damn, this guy's funny. Oh, he's gonna. I, is gonna like him. Ah. And then the letter goes, not the plaintiff's lawyer is a good lawyer. It's eh, I need some more money because we we got some problems with this case, right? All of that goes into it. You can't do that over the phone. You can't do it with written discovery. Get your ass in an in-person depot. If you can't do it in person, get it in a remote depot.
1: Wow. There's so much power there. And uh, thank thank you for sharing that. And what's next for you? And then how can the attorneys listening who may wanna take you up on the Warrior Fund get in touch with you?
0: If this is shameless plug time. Yes, sir. Let me say that I have a YouTube channel called Alder Talk, A-L-D-E-R Talk, where a lot of the little two and three minute, I have maybe 50 different videos or more on different things that will come up. If you follow me on Instagram, at Alder Law, Alder Law. I would say Instagram, Alder Law, or personally, if you want like life advice, Mike.Alder and my YouTube channel, which is Alder Talk. You go on there, you have access to reach me in any way possible.
1: Thanks so much to Mike Alder for sharing his wisdom today. Let's hit the takeaways. Time for the pinpoints. Here we go. Pinpoint number one. Leopards don't change their spots, and according to Mike, neither do attorneys. Show insurance companies what kind of lawyer you are up front. They see thousands of attorneys and will push around anyone they can, come out swinging.
0: The very earliest that you can notice depots, you notice them. Of course, it's gonna be unilaterally set. And when they squawk and say, we're not available, then you say, well, look, I'm happy to move it. As soon as you give me a date that's relatively close in time, I'll move it to that date. Oh, by the way, my client's available for depot right now. You want to do a medical exam? You don't need to give me statutory notice. They can show up tomorrow. Find the doctor you want. Oh, Mike, aren't you giving away the farm? No, I am teaching the other side. What kind of leopard are you?
1: Next up, pinpoint number two. Gather up all your cases. See where you're not being treated fairly by the pre-lit adjuster. If not, file.
0: I will loan you the money interest-free. Because I know if you do what I say, that you are gonna settle 70% of the cases that if they give you bullshit, you file, you go to a new litigation adjuster or a defense lawyer, especially the cases where you just need another 10 grand or 15 grand, that puts you over the the edge. And I'm not worried about you stiffing me because you're gonna have more money than you ever had before to
1: give it back to you. And pinpoint number three, giving isn't a dirty word. Believe in the good. As attorneys, you see some really heavy stuff. So skepticism is completely reasonable, especially when an offer sounds too good to be true. But when someone like Mike is reaching out a hand, you could do well to take it.
0: There are no strings attached. I am a firm believer in good karma, good works, good deeds, is a good life, and it is good business.
1: Want even more trial wisdom? Check out Mike's book, The Trial Lawyer's Bible. It's a compilation of articles and litigation strategies at Mike's firm with step-by-step processes. You can find the link in the show notes. While you're checking out those resources, please hit the follow button so you never miss an episode of Personal Injury Mastermind with me, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging out. See you next time. I'm out.